The other day I asked my husband if he had taken out the trash and he said he had. Awesome! I answered. Is it? He said. Is taking out the trash really awesome? Well, I should have said great instead. Is it? Said Robert. Is it really great? <sighs> okay, I should have said good. He accepted that word as long as it didn't have an exclamation point following it, which you can always tell in conversation. I could have said good, and he would have rejected it, but good was okay. Have you said awesome in the past week or two? And what did you say it about? I hope it wasn't about trash or pizza or even something as good as getting a coveted appointment to test yourself for COVID because awesome should be used for higher purposes. I never noticed the American love of superlatives to describe ordinary things until I read a book written about an African who had emigrated to this country and her puzzlement over why Americans use so many exclamation points in their conversations. So now I notice it, but apparently not enough to correct myself according to my husband who is 100% right. I just want to go on the record that I said that. 100% right in this instant. Awesome should be used for God. Awesome belongs to God because he is. Now what comes to your mind? Oh, if we were together, I'd have you say something, speak it out, or I'd have you um, talk to uh, someone in your row. But he is, what about God is awesome? Help me out, what? Okay, he's awesome because he's here. He's awesome because he is creative. The mind of God to create what he has created. He's awesome because he's forgiving, loving, caring, providing. I just thought of so many things. I know you did too. We're in a sermon series entitled Created for Worship. Created for worship. We're exploring the turn of our mortal hearts and our mortal minds, our souls, our attention towards God. And what comes out of this intersection when we are in a right relationship with God, what comes out of this intersection between us and God is worship. So that's my attempt to define worship. Worship is our response to meeting with our awesome God. Other people have defined it this way. Worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. Somebody else defined it this way. Put simply, worship is declaring the greatness of someone or something. It is giving up your own glory to make sure everyone knows that the thing being worshipped is pretty awesome. Now that's the correct use of the word awesome there. To put it even more succinctly, worship is bowing down to lift up. And there are many other attempts to define worship. It's really hard to wrap 
one's arm around worship because it encompasses so much. It's much like defining love. So we have decided to spend several weeks on it. Our passage today comes from Acts 17. At this point, Paul and Silas had been proclaiming Jesus as the resurrected Messiah in Philippi, where they were thrown into prison. Then they went to Thessalonica, where they were attacked by a mob. They were sent off in the middle of the night by the believers there to Berea, where they continued preaching the news of Jesus. But people from Thessalonica followed them and incited another mob against them. So the believers sent Paul to Athens. Somehow, Silas and Timothy got separated and were left behind. And this is where our passage picks up in Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. His spirit was riled up within him. His inner being was distressed to just see a forest of idols that were on display in Athens. Now what we know about Athens in that time was that it was a top-notch, impressive cultural center considered the intellectual capital of the whole empire. Other people who came to this city were impressed by the art everywhere. But Paul saw those figures for what they were. They were idols that people worshipped and the city was full of them. Verse 17, so he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Now, that's name calling of a low kind. They were calling him a second rate thinker, someone who picks up other ideas, other people's ideas and just spits them out randomly. Verse 18, continuing, others said he seemed to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. Now, this was a serious charge. It was illegal in Athens, which was full of idols to different gods, but it was illegal to bring a foreign god into this city. I'm not, I don't quite understand that, but... Verse 19, so they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. This was, this was a ruling body and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and the breath and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth. And he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live. So that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. Though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said. Now this is a quote from a 
Cretan philosopher named uh, 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 <laughs> whatever his name was, Epimenides. Epimenides. For we two are his offspring, and this is a quote from a Sicilian poet called Aratus. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, see how subtly he sticks in there the fact that these very intelligent people were ignorant. Uh, God has overlooked the time of human ignorance. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And at that point, Paul left him, left them. Okay. In a city in which it was illegal to bring in a foreign god, Paul preached a whole sermon on the unknown God based on an inscription he found already in the city and he preached his sermon without mentioning the name of Jesus but by calling him a man whom God had resurrected from the dead which everybody understood was Jesus. I guess we could say that Athenians were worshipful people because they had so many statues dedicated to so many gods scattered in their city. But none of those gods, none of them, was worthy of worship. Not one. That was Paul's message. And he put his finger on a common human tendency, the object of our worship, the one or the who or the what we worship, often falls short of the only one who is worthy of worship. There is only one God who is worthy of all our worship. Idolatry is not a thing of the past. People still have objects to worship. It's not uncommon when you go into a nail salon as you do to get your mani or your petty to see an image of Buddha, a little food offering, a little incense offering there. But idols don't have to be visible to be idols. American football might qualify for American idolatry, and I really like football. I was going to say love, and I was going to say it's great, but I'm not. I like American football. The almighty dollar why do we give money a name that belongs to God alone? The amount of screen consumption. I've wondered if an ancient person observing our culture would conclude that screens are our idols, given the amount of time and resources we devote to them. Not right now, of course. This is very legitimate screen time right now. But the other stuff that we, um, time that we spend on screens. So checking our idolatry is a matter of rigorously checking our priorities to see where we actually spend our devotion as opposed to what we say 
our priorities are. Now, Paul had a lot of guts. He stood before a crowd of people, almost all of whom worshipped different gods, some of them following multiple gods, and he told them to their face, my God is way above your God. Way above your gods. You cannot really compare them. They are in no way equal. And this claim in particular makes Christians unpopular today. Because people believe in all sorts of things. Horoscopes, fortune telling, they believe in other spirits, they believe in witches, in crystals, and ancestors, and formula worship. People give spiritual space to all kinds of different avenues and different entities and saying God is above all of that. That is chicken feed. That's not even worth your time. It just sucks the air right out of the room. It's not cool today. And I imagine it was even more uncool in Paul's time when, in Athens when he made this claim. Paul said God doesn't function the way you and your gods function. He doesn't need you. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need your sacrifices. Instead of us giving to God, God always gives to us. It's always this way that the flow of giving is downward. And there's an eternal imbalance in this that will never change. God takes nothing. He gives everything. And this is counterintuitive to our nature. It's not the way our social structures work. It's contrary to our power dynamics. And being in the place of humility, of submission before God. Well, we don't, we don't really like submission and obedience, do we? We like to do it my way. We have a whole song about that, doing it my way. And how many of us had tried to find just the right words to make God do what we're asking him to do in prayer? And how many of us have wanted to force God's hand? And how many of us think that we have something to bring to God which will get his approval? Money or good deeds or power or, I mean, or prayer or fasting? God doesn't need what we have to bring him. And that's a hard message to hear. And it's even harder to incorporate because we have the tendency to step back over that line time and again. Paul said to the Athenians, the God you don't know made all the heavens, all the earth. God is creator of all. And therefore, he is Lord over all creation. He made every people group. And therefore, he is Lord over all peoples too. God has jurisdiction over every person. He has the right to be both the source and the destination of our spiritual longings. Paul said to those Athenians, your worship of other gods is wrong. Your worship of other gods isn't benign, harmless practice. It requires your repentance. The God who made you is deserving of you knowing him and you knowing that it's wrong to worship other lesser things and is worthy of you turning away from your wrong in, in repentance. Paul said to those Athenians, and the judge is coming. 
One day you will be judged on this matter by the man whom God raised from the dead, which we all know as Jesus. Now, it took a lot of strength to say this in a highly intellectual and powerful, proud group of people. But the best thing Paul said to them was, God is knowable. The God you don't know is knowable. And God wants you to know him, even though to us it feels like searching and groping and trying to find. Okay, that just describes me to a T. Every day I am searching and groping and trying to find something. Usually it's something small and not all that important. So the process of finding rings absolutely true when it comes to the most existential search of our lives, our search for God. And did you catch what Paul said to the Athenians about their quest? Indeed, God is not far from each one of, the, each one of us. And he proved his point by quoting two of their poets, God is both knowable and near. Awesome. Paul told the Athenians a whole lot about the God they did not know. And I want to spend the rest of our time admiring this one and only God and leading us into worshiping him together, if your heart agrees. Because we are created to worship. And when we worship God, the only one worth it, our souls are at peace. We have found our resting place where we belong, where we are filled. So let's look at God. And if you were present, I'd ask you to say after me, look at God when I say it and then you say it. So wherever you are, you repeat that phrase as a way to focus yourself in worship. God is above all else. Everything, everything we see and know is created by God. He is untouched. He is alone. There is nothing. There was no one like him. Look at God. God is a generous giver. He doesn't need anything that we have to give him, and yet he gives us everything we need. That breath of air you just took is a gift from God. Life that you yourself are living is given to you by the Creator. The days and the years that God has given to you, life comes from God. Provision. Look back on all that God has provided, maybe even or maybe especially in the lean times when you had to lean on Him hard in His generosity and care for you. And if you love God and have been following God for some time, you should be able to find many examples in your life of the generosity of God, even when you don't really deserve it. Is one coming to your mind now? Look at God. God created us to desire him. His purpose in creating each different culture, each different People group, did you notice that his purpose in creating all of these differences is so that we would search for him? The purpose of our creation, the major purpose of our life, 
is to search for and connect with our Creator. So let that sink in. And that means that our dissatisfaction with this world, our hunger for justice, our hunger for love, our hunger for forgiveness on this MLK week, our hunger for change, systemic and total change, is really a longing for a God who will make things right because things are not right now. God created us with a built-in hunger for God who is love. Look at God. God is near. Imagine the cruelty if God created us to desire him and then removed himself beyond the heavens to watch us fruitfully search. But no, God is near. God makes himself to be found. Have you ever played hide and seek with a toddler? You have to hide with half of yourself sticking out so that they can find you. That's the game. The whole point of hide and seek with a toddler is not so that you can fool them. The whole point of the game is that they enjoy finding you. That's the God we have. Look at God. And God deserves our worship simply because of who he is. And when we do not worship him, we are usurping the place that rightfully belongs to him. We are filling it up instead with things that cannot satisfy it, us. We are giving honor that belongs to God elsewhere. So our worship is simply a recognition of God. I see you. I know you. Worship is the dance of glee, the joyful shout of recognition that the toddler gives when playing hide and seek. Worship is the reward we get for recognizing God when we see him. Look at God. God is so awesomely above us that the breadth and wonder of God should take our breath away. And God is so impossibly near to us that the amazement of him should catch our throat. Look at God. So I just think we need to express some praise to God right now. Your heart may already have been in worship through the prayers, through the singing, through giving, through listening as I have been talking, but just thinking about what an awesome God we have wells up a response within us. So part of our response together in community comes from singing together. And I know it's not the same on the screen, but as we sing, I'm, I'm asking you to let yourself go and worship, to give yourself to God and worship, to honor God with extravagant love and extreme humility to look at God. We meet in Altadena every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific, both in the sanctuary and on YouTube. Most other events will be starting up soon, but if you need prayer now, please reach out to us at altabapprayer at aol.com. And again, as always, we pray God's blessings on you this week.